You're listening to the She's Unshakable podcast. I'm your host, Fleur Lonsdale. And if you're looking to create incredible courage, resilience, and unshakable belief in yourself, then this podcast is for you. Each episode, I'll be interviewing incredible adventurers, athletes, and entrepreneurs to dig deep into the strategies and tools they use to create unwavering courage and belief so that you can learn how to never give up on your goals and achieve the life of your dreams. Welcome to episode 27. I'm so excited to introduce you to Alyssa Azer, who is the youngest Australian to ever climb Mount Everest. And we talk about whether she was even capable of doing this, the thoughts that went through her mind um, when she was training and when she was going for it, but really understanding that taking the next step, not looking too far ahead. And we really delve into the way that she grew up, the way that her dad looked after her and the training that she did for it Um, and all of the things that go through the mind when you're aiming for something like this. But she talks about the perfect performance line and always getting back to that line even when things pull you back. Welcome Alyssa, I'm so excited to have you on our podcast today. And oh yeah, you're gonna have so much fun. We're gonna have so much fun having this conversation. So yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. You are most welcome, most welcome. Hey, so the first question I always ask my podcasters is, "What's your morning routine?" I feel like yours might be a little bit different to other people's. Yeah, so it really depends. I mean, when I'm in training for a climb, uh, which is pretty consistently, um, most of my mornings start with training. So. I'll get out of bed typically somewhere around 4 a.m. I then, yeah, usually by sort of 4.35, I'm either in the gym or I'm heading out to do a pack walk. So loading up a pack with some weights and sandbags and finding some hills to do repeats up and down. Um, And at the moment, I'm actually studying at uni. So I then head into work not long after that. Um, you know, after I've, I've had breakfast, had my coffee and all of that. And, um, yeah, so we co-own a gym and an adventure business, um, with my dad. And so I work out of there and then study out of there. So that's, yeah, sort of my morning routine always starts with my training. Wow. Cool. And do you do anything else apart from training in the mornings? Yeah. So in the mornings I tend to yeah, I try and fit my training in first, um, but certainly part of my daily routine is I do always journal yeah. um, if I can. Some days I don't always fit it in, but I try to um, just sort of, yeah, just running through how the day went and then, yeah, sort of where I'm at, particularly when I do sort of have one of these, you know, big goals coming up. Um, it's really interesting to sort of reflect on that process as well. Yeah. 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 Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about you, about your story and what got you started in climbing in the first place? Yeah. So really I started out in trekking and how that came about was, you know, I was really active as a kid um, from sort of five or six early years in school, Um, loved all sorts of sports. Um, Yeah. Just was really active. And my dad happened to be a trekking guide. So he was in the army and then part-time would guide people across the Kokoda track in Papua New Guinea. So 
I guess I was kind of around it and some of the stories of these people he would take across, you know, this 96 kilometre jungle track in Papua New Guinea just fascinated me. Um, so I'd heard a lot about this place and most of my weekends from a really early age were spent out bushwalking just around our local trails. Um, I would often join some of his clients that were training for Kokoda. And, uh, yeah, it didn't take long before I sort of got the idea in my head that, you know, one day I want to go and experience that for myself. Um, and it's interesting, I, I got that opportunity a lot earlier than expected. So sort of harassed my dad for a couple of years of, like, <laughs> when can I maybe do it? And uh, he actually came back from a trip one day, and I was about seven at the time, and he said, all right, like, I'll let you go if you really are that into it and you want the opportunity, but I'm going to give you a year-long training plan. And if you miss a single session or you're not putting in the work, then you won't go. And so that was uh, a really pivotal moment for me. I think it really helped set me up for success on some of my later expeditions because, you know, it was like, yes, there's this opportunity to go and have this really cool experience, this adventure, but it requires work and you've got to make sure that you do put in the work before you go. Um, so you can both enjoy the trip, but also earn that accomplishment. And so a year-long uh, sort of training plan of training consistently three times a week. Uh, then in August of 2005, we went over and I was eight years old when I crossed the Kokoda track and it was just the most amazing experience. I felt very grateful to get to have done that. Um, and that was kind of, yeah, my introduction to adventure and every couple of years where we could, we'd try and take on another trek somewhere, um, pretty much with that same process. You know, you put in the training, you get ready for it, you set that goal in advance, and then you get to go and, you know, have that experience. So when I was 14, I then went to Mount Kilimanjaro. So we, along with about eight other Australian trekkers, we climbed the highest mountain in Africa. And at the time, it was the toughest thing I'd ever done. I'd never experienced that sort of altitude. Mm. Um, so certainly had, you know, the big summit night, the headaches, experiencing yeah. the cold and all that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and then it was actually around that time that I decided I wanted to get into bigger mountain climbing. And I certainly sort of questioned, you know, could I do that? I admired, you know, elite high altitude mountain climbers for years. And it was just sort of the time where on Kilimanjaro, I proved to myself that, okay, it was tough, but I could perform. And, uh, yeah, decided that I wanted to get into the, the bigger mountain climbing. Sweet. And so, um, obviously, along the way, you've faced some challenges, especially, you know, getting to Everest. Um, why don't yes. you talk us through, well, some of the challenges and possibly even the challenge of doing it itself? Because how old were you when you went? Yeah, so I summited Everest when I was 19. After Kilimanjaro, I set the goal of wanting to climb Everest, and it's something that was in the back of my mind for years. It was kind of a, a dream in the distance, I guess. Like many climbers, you hear about the world's highest mountain, and for a lot of people, it just has that aura of, um, yeah, something that you're quite fascinated by. So I certainly had that. Um, and I remember when I was quite young, we would, you know, go and get all our trekking gear down in Brisbane in Australia, and um, which wasn't far from where I was living, and 
they would have all of these sort of high altitude mountain climbers on the wall and, you know, all of these big mountains that they climbed, including Everest. And so I think that had an impact on me as well. It showed me that, oh, look at what these people have accomplished. And yeah, yeah so after I'd done Kilimanjaro, I was like, I, I want to try and get into that. Um, and so I went and did a climbing course in New Zealand. Um, that was the first step to going from, you know, trekking into actually gaining those sort of mountaineering skills yeah. that I might need and all the technical aspect to it. So we learned everything from avalanche rescue to ice climbing to, you know, all sorts of different things. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it was the physical training as well. So the physical training aspect, yeah, went on for a few years, um, about three years at that point. And wherever I could, I'd try and put that to the test. So I didn't always, you know, be able to go onto an expedition financially, but every sort of year I would try and take on a climb somewhere in order to be ready for Everest um, because that was certainly the end goal. So I went on an expedition to the Andes mountain range to climb Aconcagua, the highest mountain over there and one of the seven summits. And um, that was certainly one of the toughest expeditions I've ever been on and really helped prepare me for Everest. Um, so we spent three weeks climbing over in South America and uh, had a few really experienced guides, um, all who had summited Everest. So they understood what I was trying to do and the level that I needed to perform at. So it was really good to sort of be around them as well. And so after about three years of that process, I then had my first attempt on Everest. Um, so I was... 17 at the time, flew over to Kathmandu and um, yeah, it was pretty surreal to finally be there after <laughs> yeah. a, a few years of training and it was actually happening and so um, did the trek into Everest Base Camp with our team and uh, this particular season, we'd been there for about a, a week, um, hadn't really started climbing, we'd just done some sort of trekking locally around the area um, to get acclimatised and uh, there was a, an avalanche yeah. in the first yeah. section of the climb that killed 16 Sherpas uh, straight off the bat. So that was within the first couple of weeks of the climbing season in 2014. And um, it was very real. Um, definitely remind you when you're over there, you know, just what, how powerful that mountain is, how powerful nature is. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, straight away, the season was pretty much cancelled. And so all those years of training and then certainly for it to end in such a, a devastating way um, certainly took some time to process. And uh, after a few months, you know, I, I knew in the back of my mind that I still did want to climb Everest, but it certainly um, was quite challenging to sort of come back from that one. Yeah. Uh, but I ended up having my second attempt on the mountain the next season. So I returned to Everest in 2015 um, same team, so we yeah flew into Kathmandu and did the uh, the trek into base camp. And um, this time we'd been there for a couple of weeks, and I actually remember we were getting ready to climb that morning. So you know all packed up the night before, ready to go. Um, it was two o'clock in the morning. We get up and get all our climbing gear on, getting ready to climb through one of the most dangerous sections on the mountain, the Kumbu Icefall. And, um, yeah, it was 2 o'clock in the morning and our head Sherpa came over and said, oh, look, it's had a lot of snowfall overnight, um, so it's even more unstable than usual. So we'll delay it one more day. We'll take a rest day in base camp and we'll head up tomorrow. And so we thought, yeah, okay. Um, around midday that day, the Nepal earthquake hit. And because we were in base camp, um, at the time, we're quite isolated. We're quite unaware of, you know, what's going on around the country. 
Um, but, yeah, we're surrounded by mountains, and so that triggered a huge avalanche, which tore through base camp. We were very fortunate that we were sort of on the outer sections of base camp, so while our tents and everything were destroyed, no one in our team was hurt. Um, but immediately it became a climbing expedition to, a, you know, a rescue and just really assisting in any way we could. We got stuck over in Nepal for a couple of weeks and just tried to use that time. Again, you feel pretty helpless, but just trying to help in any way that we could. Um, and then again, it was time to head home. Um, so that was really challenging, you know, two years in a row to have such bad luck and in such a devastating way. Um, certainly was quite challenging as, you know, I guess a mountain athlete, it is hard to sort of give up on your goal and, and all that sort of thing. So yeah, again, kind of just sat back for the next few months and didn't really think too much about Everest, although I knew someday I'd still like to climb it. Yeah. And it was after a few months I remember some of the locals, some of the Sherpas I knew over there, wanted people to come back. Um, they were saying that obviously it's uh, you know good for them and their jobs and their tourism, but also one of them said to me, you know, we want to have a positive season on Everest after mm -hmm. the last two years. And so hearing them be so positive about it started to make me go, okay, maybe the chance that you know, we could we could have another attempt, and um, the the biggest challenge in returning for a third attempt was definitely mental. Um, yeah. You know, I knew physically I'd been training for years. Um, you know, had a lot of these experiences, was quite fit, but it was really about not holding myself back because of all those doubts, because of all of the things outside of my control. Um, so I trained pretty hard for another six months in the lead up to my third attempt on Everest. And, um, yeah, whilst I was physically fit, the biggest challenge was getting my mind right mm. and um, not sort of counting myself out before it's even started. I knew that I wanted to go back with the mentality that if there's any chance, any window of opportunity that opens up for us, I'm ready to go. And so, um, yeah, in 2016, headed back to Everest for my third attempt um, in three years and, um, we were very fortunate this time. The weather and everything was great and, and no major incidents. So um, trekked into base camp and then began, yeah, this two-month expedition of living and climbing on Everest. And um, so, yeah, we, we trekked into base camp. It takes about 10 days. Um, and this time I was actually climbing with a different climbing team. So they were a Sherpa run-and-owned company, which was really good because they gave us a lot of support, but then you had you know, a lot of flexibility as well to climb at your own pace, make your own decisions and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so we had a really good team of Sherpas and then international climbers as well. Um, so we get to base camp and the climbing season begins after we've acclimatised a little bit. And I remember climbing up through, yeah, the Cumbu Icefall. Um, and it's, you know, a place that I'd camped at the foot out of, I'd always you know, imagine what it would be like in, in that icefall. And it was certainly a very nerve-wracking experience as well, mm, knowing yeah. how wrong things could go in there, and it is predominantly luck. Um, but, yeah, I remember that first morning getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning and starting that climb through the icefall, and it was incredibly surreal. You know, you're climbing over those ladders that bridge giant crevasses and these, these big ice chunks that you're sort of climbing through this maze of those mm. um, until you get up to Camp 1 and... Um, it's certainly incredibly tough. You feel it. You feel the uh, the low oxygen levels from the time you leave base camp. But 
I felt really well prepared as well. Um, I felt like I'd certainly been mentally tested. My resilience had been retested, like tested over the last few years. Um, and I was physically in the best condition I'd ever been in. So it, it definitely pushed me, um, but I felt ready for it. And so we spent like six weeks where you do what's called rotations. Um, so you'll climb from base camp up to camp one and then come back down. And so the whole expedition, we have this motto that's climb high, sleep low. And we just do this repetitive process of getting a little bit higher and then coming back down. And then slowly over the course of that six weeks, we acclimatize our body to the lower oxygen levels. And so we do that up to camp three at about 7,000 meters. So we then came back to base camp. We spend about a week, sometimes up to 10 days resting and recovering from the climbing that we've done. And we get ready for the summit push. Um, so that's the final push up the mountain. And so, you know, everyone has a lot of adrenaline around that time. For a lot of the team, it was everyone's third attempt. Um, so everyone was very oh, invested cool. in, in what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you just sort of sit around watching weather forecasts, trying to make sure that, yeah, you're ready to go when the time comes. And so, uh, yeah, again, we, we got our weather forecast, our weather days, and, and began the climb. So we had to climb again through the Kumbu Icefall, um, and up to straight up to Camp 2, which is a big 12-hour climbing day, which definitely tested me mentally. Um, I drew on a lot of my training and a lot of the stuff that I'd been through and, um, yeah, certainly pushed me hard, but made it up to Camp 2. And from there you have, yeah, the steeper sections of the climb and the last two days of the climb. So we climb up to Camp 3, which is partway up the Lotsi face, which is one of the steepest sections on the mountain. Um, so we camp halfway up that and then climb up to Camp 4. So both of those are, you know, seven, eight-hour climbing days. And <laughs> at those altitudes, you're not really eating yeah. or sleeping much um, because your body just has to work really hard in order to be up there yeah. um, and deal with the lack of oxygen. Um, so once we get to Camp 4, we're now in what's called the death zone and you're on a time limit once you get up there. So you're very aware of that as well. It's, it's always sitting in the back of your mind. There's this real mix of emotions. On one hand, you know that everything you've done for years really comes down to this and it's surreal and it's exciting, but then you also know the reality of that environment and, you know, things can change really quickly. So for me, it was just about, uh, yeah, controlling what I could control, um, mentally focusing on each stage of the climb and not getting too far ahead of myself. Um, and I figured if I did that, then then hopefully it would all come together. So I remember leaving Camp 4 at, you know, 9 o'clock at night and we climbed really, really steep sections up to the balcony on Everest before we then hit that sort of final ridgeline. So we spent about eight hours climbing through the night um, and it wasn't until that last hour that I, I knew I was actually going to make it. Before then, you know, we'd heard all these reports of, oh, you know, there might be bad weather. We think there's high winds coming in. So I half expected that we were going to get turned around and mm. really had to push that out of my mind and just go, all right, get as far as you can and, and do the best that you can with what you're able to. But, yeah, then getting up to what's called the South Summit where there's the final ridge line. You can see the Hillary Step and then the actual summit, um, and my Sherpa partner and I, we were climbing together, and he said, we're only an hour away, and that's when I knew I was going to make it, and uh, yeah, almost just disbelief for that sort of final ridgeline, because again, you know, as a climber, you 
you visualize that for years, you, you've seen pictures of it, but to actually be standing there is incredibly surreal. And um, yeah, only an hour later took those final few steps onto the summit. And um, I've always said, you know, when you get there, it's almost like time stands still yeah. and you're looking down on some of the highest mountains in the world. So it's a very surreal moment. Amazing. And so like, th- obviously, that's, I mean, you make it sound so simple. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, just uh, just did this and then that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, it definitely wasn't, it definitely wasn't that simple. Um, <laughs> I'd love to know, like, what's going through your mind, like, throughout that time, apart from, am I even going to make it, like, the hardest moments, because I'm, I'm sure that there were, like, times when you were like, oh my god, can I even, can I do this, or you know, is, you, you like, all the tiredness, and, you know, I've, I've hiked a high altitude, but I haven't hiked that high, um, and, you know, we had a lot of people who got, uh, like, really sick, and I was, I couldn't eat, like, the altitude just made me just lose my hunger, and I was, like, forcing almonds yeah. and, like, boiled eggs down my throat, and it was horrendous, and, um, you know, that was even 5,000 metres, and I was just like, how did people go any higher than this? <laughs> Although, like, I wasn't sick, I was fine, but, like, the, the, the things that go through your mind and the other stuff, like, obviously you had a really good team with you, which I definitely think is, is a huge deal, but give us some of the stuff that was sort of going through your mind at the time. Yeah, so definitely it's sort of different at different points um it's interesting I think part of what definitely makes a good climber particularly on those big expeditions I think you definitely have to have that vision and that belief that like I'm going to stand on the summit but I think you then have to be really good at focusing on each task as it comes and knowing when to sort of change you know for me it was about doing each task right. So I found that I performed at my best when I was totally in the moment of what I was doing. And yeah, if you look too far ahead, you're just putting energy into something that you can't control. And so that was really important. But yeah, I remember my toughest day on the mountain actually was quite surprising to me because I expected it to be up higher, but it was actually that day climbing from base camp up to camp two. Um, So I remember leaving base camp and you walk for about 30 minutes um so it's you know pitch black 2 a.m it's freezing cold and you're really trying to psych yourself up for what you know is going to be a big sort of tough day Mm. and um you know that it was a very emotionally draining day actually because you're always on edge when you're climbing in that icefall section and we had about six hours of climbing up through there and again I'm focusing on literally just each step that I'm taking And um, in the space of about sort of 30 minutes um, that morning, it's pitch black. I can just see my head torch and and where I need to take my next step. And three big avalanches went off around us and you can hear them, but you can't see them. And, you know, that's moments like that on the mountain where absolutely it's just running through your mind about, okay, how badly do I want this? What am I actually willing to risk for it? Um, It really makes you, yeah, sort of assess what your commitment um, to the climb is. And, yeah, for me it was about, I guess, I'd really attached a lot of my identity at that point to climbing, to climbing Everest specifically. Um, You know, I'd put in years of commitment to it and, um, yeah, just decided that no matter how much sort of pressure that I was under, I 
I wanted to perform um, more than anything. So I remember later that day, that was when I really hit the wall. Um, so we climbed up to camp one where you kind of get out of that ice wall section and it's a bit safer. But then you've got, you know, still another six hours to go of um, pretty tough climbing up to camp two. And it's just quite mentally taxing because you can see camp two, but it, it never seems to get any closer. And, um, yeah, you really start to feel the effects of altitude. It is hard to breathe. Um, you're just a lot more taxed. So it's probably one of the most exhausted times I've ever felt. And it was the one time, particularly on Everest, where I really started to question, am I capable of this? Because we're not even at Camp 2 yet, and we've still got to climb some of the harder sections of the mountain. And, you know, I had to really reduce it down to, all right, just take the next 10 steps and then take another 10 and, you know, just focus on the next 10 steps. And I did that for sort of the last four hours. And, um, yeah, we were all buggered by the time that we got up to the next camp. And, um, yeah, it was certainly about I – th- I look back on it now and think, yeah, I was thinking too far ahead. I was worried about the later sections of the climb. I was doubting whether I could do it. I had to bring my focus back to, all right, just dig deep and focus on the section in front of you and just keep doing that. Yeah. And um, after that particular day alone, I had a whole new appreciation for – what your body can do if your mind is willing to push it there. Um, so you, you do realise that you're capable of so much more um, than you think. So it was a real eye-opener and an incredibly challenging day. And then at the higher sections of the mountain, it was still incredibly tough, um, obviously being up at some of the highest altitudes in the world. You know, it takes an hour just to get your boots on because you're that taxed just by being up there. Um, and it is literally just, you know, we live and sleep in our down suits that we wear and we just get up and keep climbing. So, you know, you kind of collapse at the end of the day and and get up and go again. So I think what helped me sort of get through those most challenging times was a couple of things. One, you know, for me, it was about being, you know, sort of earning the right to call yourself, you know, an Everest summiteer. I was really attached to that idea and and like I said it was a big part of my identity I wanted to prove to myself that I was capable of doing that and so um yeah I guess you just kind of expect a high level of yourself and um when you do expect more from yourself you tend to to live up to it and so I think that certainly helped me um but yeah also just drawing on some of those challenges that you've overcome before and and believing that you can overcome whatever you're sort of faced with on the mountain so They were definitely tough days. You know, our summit day was around sort of 17 hours of straight climbing. Um, And again, I was incredibly exhausted. But, you know, once you've done it, you've got that real sort of elated feeling. Yeah. And then you're like, get me back down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You get up there and uh, you got to get back down. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm here. Let's go. Um, Awesome. Well, I mean, it sounds amazing. And it's funny because... I've always sort of thought, you know, is Everest something that I would want to do? But I think the actual thing that's put me off mostly is there being so many people up there. And, yeah, you know, I love being in the mountains, but I don't like being in the mountains with, with everyone else. Like, I love being in the mountains yeah. because it's super peaceful. Like, it's just white and beautiful everywhere. It's gorgeous and there's no one around. And it's really yeah. interesting, like you know, how many people essentially do it and you see photos and you're like, whoa, it's so crazy. It's so bizarre because it's like, you know, this, this trail of, of people who are trying to get up there and, 
Yeah. What are your What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so it's interesting. I I was fortunate that when I summited in 2016, whilst there were a few teams, we had a record low number of climbers because of the previous two seasons um, and everything that had happened. So, I mean, it's still something you have to contend with. Um, For sure, you've got to try and plan, you know, your summit days around other teams because you don't want to clash. Um, But, you know, having been there for a few seasons, unfortunately, I think the issue is there's a couple of teams every year that have zero, you know, restrictions in place to who can climb and, you know, as long as they can sort of pay the fee, then up they go. And yeah. for me, it definitely takes something away from it. You know, I, I get people ask me all the time, would you go back? And, you know, it's not that I wouldn't, but that that would probably stop me. I think, um, like you've said, for me, a big part of the appeal of the mountains is, you know, getting to be sort of you in the mountain and, um, you know, having that experience and it really shouldn't be, you know, queuing up and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, so if, for me, that that would make me certainly not want to go back to it um, unless, you know, rules and regulations changed or or something was different about it. So, yeah, it's a hard one. I um, It's it's a, also a massive danger, obviously, you know. It's um, something that, oh, unfortunately, climbers who have worked really hard, they've got to contend with. They've got to try and sort of make sure that they're ahead or or going at a separate time, and it does create a lot of issues. So I think um, they've talked about it for years. I think the Nepalese government has to put something in place that restricts those climbers, restricts the number of permits they give out. Um, the Tibetan side of the mountain, the north side, does that, and um, it's it's a much better experience. Um, but, yeah, certainly I think it takes something away to have so many people there. Yeah, for sure. And... Like, how did your your parents feel about you? Did your dad do it with you at all or? No. So I was actually over there by myself, um, as in with this team um, of international climbers. But no, so I flew into Kathmandu on all of these expeditions and, and met with the team. And I'd previously known a couple of the climbers, um, but not the rest. And, um, yeah, so I went over there by myself, um, yeah, just, just meeting with them. So, you know, my parents, my dad was very supportive. Um, you know, he wasn't a climber himself, even though he was in the adventure sort of industry. He was a trekking guide, um, still is today. Yeah. He never really was into sort of those high altitude, big climbs or anything like that, but he was always very supportive of me doing it. He certainly, you know, I remember when I got back from Kilimanjaro and said, you know, this is what I want to do. I really had no idea what it entailed or how long it was even going to take. Um, but I just said, you know, I want to start working toward this goal of climbing Everest. And, um, yeah, he was really supportive, but he said, look, you know, we need to look at what that involves and and put a plan in place. You need to make sure that you're surrounded by the right people, that you're training, that, you know, um, yeah, he always saw it as his role, I guess, to help me prepare as much as possible um, to make sure that I had the skills and the strength to be ready for that environment. Um, whereas, you know, no one else in my family, including my mum, were into the adventurous sort of stuff at all. Um, so my mum was previously in the Australian Army, but now she's a nurse. And, um, you yeah, know, was kind of removed from that. Um, so other than sort of my dad and I focusing on, you know, the climb and, and how I could best prepare for it, it you know, the, the rest of my family was quite removed from it, I guess. So they were very nervous, obviously, when I was climbing over there and particularly with the first two seasons and then going back for that third attempt. Um, I would sort of ring in by satellite phone wherever I could, but 
um, yeah, it was definitely something they were quite nervous about. Yeah, I can I can imagine. <laughs> Poor things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably thinking, oh my goodness. Um, so, like, I mean, obviously mountains are mountains and they have, you know, a mind of their own and some, that's something that we have to take mm. into account. Like, as a human, we are just basically playing in their world, right? Yes. And, you know, avalanches do happen a lot and crevasses, you know, essentially do open up or snow bridges break or whatever it might be that happens. Like, having two seasons where you see mountain at its full, like, what is clearly possible, like, in straight in front of your eyes and having to be in that situation. You know, I know a lot of skiers who've potentially been in avalanches or have had to you know dig people out and it can really play on someone's mind and it can it can really stop them from doing things especially going back to a same area or doing you know a similar thing like how like what do you think your tools were that just sort of made you get through that yeah I think it's a few things um certainly for me I never viewed any sort of I guess failure even if it was circumstances outside of our control I never really viewed it as the end point for me it is being a little bit stubborn in in what you want to achieve um you know being flexible in how you get there but knowing that you know this is a a goal that I set for myself that was important to me it's something that I valued highly and I think I just didn't want to be the type of person that that quit on it you know I just thought that's not who I am um so yeah, I certainly, I guess having that desire to be resilient is a, resilient is a big part of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to overcome those obstacles. And so I guess for me, yeah, returning to the mountain um, was certainly nerve-wracking because you just don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, those first two seasons, you see the absolute worst that can happen in the mountains. And there were certainly a lot of climbers that were turned off by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really does test your reason for being there um whether it's something that would be kind of nice to do or whether you really are sort of deeply committed to it um for me I was very much deeply committed to it I think that helped so yeah for me I just viewed a lot of those obstacles as um you know learning opportunities uh learning how to sort of deal with those situations I also think the way that we approach the process was really important so when I said to my dad you know I want to climb Everest at some point I want to start working toward that goal we didn't look at you know best case scenario it's going to be summered oh it's going to be great you know it was like okay well what are all the things that could go wrong and are you willing to deal with those things you know is is that a reality you're willing to deal with um because you know if you're willing to deal with that then yeah go for it um but you know he set me up I guess in a really realistic way to go okay here are the challenges and also for me it was also surrounding myself with the right mentors um, which certainly wasn't easy because it's not like you know I didn't have anyone around me who had summited Everest or anything but one of my mentors was uh, a friend of mine now named Keith Um, so he was the youngest person to make it into the Australian SAS and so he had a lot of, you know, experience with taking on something really challenging but also potentially life-threatening at quite a young age. Yeah. And so I went down and did a training camp with him and we just talked a lot around, yeah, sort of the mindset and how you approach going into an unknown environment 
and and sort of how you react to situations and all of that. Um, so that really helped me as well. Definitely surrounding yourself with the right people um, was a big one. Yeah, mentors are huge. It was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you, so it's funny that you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'd love to know, like, what kind of mindset stuff did he take you through that, like you could share yeah. with us that would, you know, be able to help someone who might even be thinking of doing not may not maybe Everest or maybe Everest, but something, yep. you know, super challenging. Yeah. So we went through a couple things. So it was interesting. So I was 17. It was probably about four months out from my first attempt on Everest. And I hadn't met this guy. I'd read a book that he wrote. Um, and you know, my dad knew him. So they kind of organized that, you know, this is a way to sort of put the training to the test. Um, but yeah, just be around someone with a really high level mindset. And so I went down to Sydney and we did a bit of training. So we, we definitely worked on the physical side, but it was definitely more about the mental side. And a few of the conversations we had um, really, really helped me on my future climbs, but also really helped me in overcoming, you know, the setbacks that I faced. Um, so one of those was he taught me this concept of the perfect performance line. So he said, when you go into the expedition, I want you to imagine there's this perfect performance line. So if everything went the way we want it to, which we know it won't, then, you know, what does that look like? And any time you sort of feel like things are getting too out of control or you're getting too far away from your path, if you can get 1% back to that line, you know, take any sort of action that gets you closer to it, then you're on the right track. And that was something that really helped me, um, you know, even when I had to return from both those attempts that – that uh, were cancelled. Uh, it was about, okay, yes, I can sit here and feel sorry for myself and, and be angry at the situation, or I can put my energy into how do I get back to my path that I was on? You know, how do I start to take those steps to get me back to where I need to be? Um, so that was definitely a big one. And we also just went through a few things like, you know, we were going to do a, a pack walk up a really challenging hill. and um, But he said to me at the base of it, he was like, I want you to imagine that you know, when you're pushing yourself up here and it's physically challenging and you do want to take a break or stop, I want you to imagine that you are on Everest. There's a team member an hour ahead of you and they need you to be able to get to them as soon as possible. And so just sort of putting, I guess, a realistic context around it and, and making you understand how it's relevant to the environment you're going into um, was also a really good sort of mental training for me. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a really cool way of looking at things. And I've never actually heard that before, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> As, so he, that guy wrote a book, did he? Or Yeah, so his name is um, Keith Fennell. Um, so he wrote a couple of books, actually, one called Warrior Brothers about his time in the Australian SAS. Um, but he also wrote a book called Warrior Training. So I remember my dad giving me that book, Warrior Training, when I was about 15 and had really just started to prepare to climb Everest. Um, and, yeah, then I got the opportunity to actually go and do a training camp with Keith. And, uh, yeah, so he, he really – I gained a lot from getting to do that. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's amazing just sort of like – because how old are you now? 23. Okay, so you're still really young. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what's amazing is that most people sort of – West, like necessarily won't grasp any of this kind of information or 
understand it or really push themselves to the point where you know they need to essentially and I, I mean I guess most most people um at 17 don't decide to go and climb Everest either but like yeah it, it's so amazing that you've been able to go through that at a young age and and learn so much from it and this might sound like a bizarre question but where in life now do you or is there any time in life where you feel like those skills are like super helpful for you that you sort of go back to that and think okay I can I can use those skills that I've learned in like my day-to-day life is there a time yeah absolutely um I think it's still relevant in a lot of things that I do whilst you know the very specific nature is quite a different world from high altitude mountaineering um certainly a lot of those skills I think are relevant I think you're always going to be faced with some sort of challenge if you can learn to find the lesson in it um I think that's a really big lesson I've learned from the mountains is you know, we can sort of tend to view something challenging straight away as bad um, by default, yeah. whereas I sort of learned to kind of flip that and go, okay, I've seen how much that I gain out of going through these challenging times and and they've certainly helped me become better even when you're confronted with things that you really wish weren't happening or, you know, are really unfortunate circumstances, you can find the lesson in that. Um, yeah. That certainly helped me in my day-to-day life where, you're always going to have things that are sort of thrown at you and, you know, you've got to be able to react in the right way and put your energy where it's best needed, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it's so awesome. You feel, I feel like your dad, like, did such a good job as well. Like, he sounds like a bit of a legend. Yeah, absolutely. He, um, I think, yeah, sort of those real two pivotal points for me, one was training for Kokoda. Um, it, it definitely taught me because, you know, I was excited by, you know, potentially getting to go and have this experience. Um, and he was like, yeah, look, absolutely. But all of this process, um, setting the goal, consistently working toward it, that's actually part of the goal. You know, you don't get to yeah. have one without the other. And I think that set a really good standard where I learned that, um, you know, if you try and take shortcuts, you're really only shortcutting yourself because there is a lot of value in the process. And so I learned to sort of see that value and, and want to go through that. Um, so I think that definitely helped me on Everest. And again, he really set me up for success when I was, you know, sort of 15 and certainly surround me with the right mentors, but just had me start with the right mentality of, yeah, look, let's look at all the risks. Let's look at you know, how it's going to change your life, what are the sort of daily, weekly commitments as well. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, even though the summit's great, the process is is much longer. So you've got to really want to do that as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, amazing. I love it. So I want to ask you any, like, it seems like you're just like fully confident, like fully like, let's do this. I can do this. This is amazing. <laughs> Um, I'd love to know, like, did you have any limiting beliefs around yourself um, whilst you're doing it? Or do you still get anything now? Or is it just you're just fully unstoppable and just going to go for it? No, look, I'm definitely not fully unstoppable. And I think it's interesting. I You do have to have a certain amount of, I guess, self-belief to, to get started. For sure. But I think you would develop a lot of it in the process as well. Um, so there were definitely days where... You know, right before an expedition, I would 
you know, question myself or particularly when I was in, you know, the training process and certainly the early days, um, I think deep down I could see myself, you know, someday standing on the summit of Everest. But, you know, day to day there would be times where, you know, I'd go to bed at night and go, what the hell am I doing? Uh, you know, I think that I can climb Everest. There were absolutely a lot of moments in, you know, the daily and, and weekly training where I would question whether I was actually capable of this. And I, I think the way that I got through that was, again, remaining steadfast on the end goal, even though I was nervous, even though I thought, oh, can I actually do this? It was about continuously taking the actions each day that I knew would get me closer to that goal, um, you know, because I'd, I'd definitely go to bed at night and go, wow, like, this is huge. Um, you'd think about the fact that this expedition is coming up and I need to be as prepared as possible. Uh, but, you know, typically then I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go and do my training session and that would fill me with a lot of confidence um, just by taking those actions that I knew were going to help me over on the mountain. Um, but, yeah, part of it is always there. There is that leap of faith. You know, you don't know the outcome and that unknown can be really scary. Um, but for me, it was just about confronting that and pushing through it and not letting it sort of take me off the path that I wanted to be on. Yeah, amazing. And did you sort of ever get to, like, one evening where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm like, I'm just not going to do this. Like, I give up. I don't think this is for me. Like, did you ever go through those feelings of, like, right at the end, just like, I can't do this anymore? Um, you know, it's interesting. Not in terms of the actual climb itself. I think I was that passionate about it and I was that aligned to what I was doing that even though there were moments of self-doubt, there were moments of, yeah, certainly you wonder why you're putting yourself through such a challenging process when you definitely don't need to um, but for me it was really important to me that I did um, but you know there were moments where you know financially it was quite challenging or there were other sacrifices that you had to make in other areas of your life to have I guess this big win um, you know it really has to take over a lot of other things and so I think those are more the times where you go you know is it worth all of the sort of sacrifices. Um, but, yeah, ultimately it's that's a personal decision for everyone and I decided that for me it was worth it. Yeah, amazing. Love it. So, okay, one of my favourite questions, which, I mean, this could be on Everest, this could not be on Everest, whichever way you want to take it. Yeah. What's, um, what's one of the scariest things that you've ever done? Um, either one of two moments. Um for me have definitely been the scariest hearing those avalanches around you and not being able to see them. Um, you know, that morning we had four climbers pull out and quit the expedition because of that. Um, and I totally understand that it was a very confronting moment, especially with the experience we'd had a couple of years prior and having an avalanche kill, you know, 16 climbers. Um, that was definitely one of the scariest moments. And the second was leaving Camp 4 to climb the final section of Everest. Um, it was also the most exciting because, you know, everything comes down to this day and you, you sort of say to yourself, I could be standing on top of the world today. But at the same time, you know, that it really doesn't take much for things to go wrong up there. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was literally walking into 
anything could happen. Um, yeah, they were definitely the two scariest moments. What, what went through your mind in, like, at that moment at Camp 4 when you're leaving and knowing that anything could happen? Like, what's what were you focusing on? Were you just focusing on the end result? Not even just the end results um, because I still didn't want to focus too much on you know, something that was seven to eight hours away, maybe up to 12 hours away when, you know, you're really struggling to take each step. Once you get up to that altitude, it is, you know, they call it the Everest shuffle. It's one step, you know, a few breaths, you're taking another step, a few breaths, and it's just hours of that. So, you know, it was definitely drawing on a little bit of that motivation of its summit day um, and all the work that you've put in, here's where you put it to the test. And in a way, I think I had the desire to perform under pressure. I wanted to prove to myself that I was the person that could do that. And a lot of my training, that sort of training camps that I would do with Keith and all of that, I wanted to be able to take all of that training. And this is something that he and I discussed as well. You know, you can be physically fit, you can have the skills, you can have the ability and the potential, but can you use it when when the time comes and when it counts? And so that's something that we really talked through and it is about who can perform under pressure. And I think in a way I was just prepared for that. But, yeah, it was definitely running through your mind. It's a few things. Um, I remember just sort of saying to myself, it's partially acceptance knowing that, okay, you've chosen to take on this goal. You know the risks. In a sense, you are accepting that anything could happen here. Um, and you do really feel in that environment, you're aware that there's not much of a safety net. Um, it's really hard to rescue people at those altitudes. Yeah. And so for some climbers, that's absolutely crippling and, you know, it's nerve-wracking. But for me, I also feel a huge sense of freedom being up in that environment as well. So I think that helped me um, definitely. Yeah, awesome. Love it. Okay, so last question. What's the best advice that you could give our listeners? I think I would say that if there's something you want to do or something that you're interested in but maybe do have a little bit of self-doubt or because you don't know how it's going to go that is maybe holding you back, I'd say start take those first few steps once you start to see what you're capable of you just never know what's going to grow from there Um, that was certainly the case for me I think um, you know crossing the Kokoda track and sort of having that courage to set the goal and then follow through with it led me to you know getting to go to Everest and getting to do all these amazing things but now you've got to take that first step so I would just say back yourself and believe in yourself yeah love it love it so much Awesome. Oh, and like, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners or maybe where they can find you or learn more information from you or yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the most active sort of social channels that I'm on are both Facebook, which is just a Facebook page, Alyssa Azar or on Instagram, which is just Alyssa Azar as well. Um, those are the two easiest ways to sort of check out what I'm up to or get in contact awesome yay um thank you so much for jumping on hun that was really insightful and i just love hearing uh, yeah i just love hearing your confidence and everything that you've (laughs) been through and i think 
that's really going to help some people, whether they're, you know, looking to climb Everest or whether they're just, you know, looking to up-level their performance and what you can yeah. really, really do in, like, mindset is everything. I do believe that mind over the body, like, big time. Um, yeah. But fully amazing to hear your story. So thanks so much for jumping on with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and head on over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listener and give us a five-star review. Don't forget to join our free Facebook community called She's Unshakable, where we get to share our tips and tricks and experiences with building courage, resilience, and belief in ourselves. I look forward to meeting you in there.